Hello, and welcome to TanakhStudy.com. I'm Yael Ziegler, and today we're going to have our third shiur on Parshat Bo. We're going to begin in Perkut Aleph, Pasuk Aleph, um, as a prelude to the final plague, that of Makat Bechorot. Um, that's what we're going to find in at least part of this chapter. And yet, one thing that we have to note is, is that now that we've concluded the first nine plagues, we now are going to have a pause in the plague narrative. While this chapter will announce the upcoming 10th plague, it does not immediately bring about its execution. Instead, we're going to have the bulk of Perak Yudet, the bulk of chapter 12, where we're going to have the mitzvah of Rosh Chodesh, the taking of the lamb, the mitzvah of Korban Pesach, and all of this is going to take place. All of these commandments are going to take place before the actual execution of the 10th plague, which is only going to happen in Pasuk Kaftet, in verse 29 of Perak Yudbet. So we have this sense that we've sort of put the plague narrative in a, a pause mode, and we'll explain why as we progress through these next few shiurim. In the meantime, in Parakud Aleph, Pasuk Aleph, after, it seems at, at least, uh, at first glance, it seems after Moshe has told Paro that he will not continue to see his face, uh, God speaks to Moshe. Vayomer Adonai el Moshe, od nege echad avi al Paro ve'al Mitzrayim, acharechen yishalach etchem mizeh, keshalacho kala garesh yigaresh etchem mizeh. And God said to Moshe, One more plague I will bring against Paro and against Egypt. After that, he will send you from this. One sends someone totally. The word kala here means completely. Garesh, garesh He will surely drive you out from here. He will sure, surely expel you from here. Of course, this pasuk is um, in opposition to the previous two plagues in which Paro expressed a certain amount of willingness to let them go, but not totally. The word here, kala, suggests that in after this next plague, he, Paro will agree to completely send you, he will send everybody, and he will not make any more conditions. The other point that's being made here is garesh garesh etchem. In other words, he will completely expel you. This recalls what we saw at the beginning of Perek Vav. If you recall back at the beginning of Perek Vav, as we were on the cusp of beginning the plague narrative, um, God said to Moshe, now you will see that which I will do to Paro, for he will send you out with a strong arm and with a strong hand, yigareshem me'artso. He will expel you from this land. This uh, description of Paro expelling the people from the land, we're going to see it again. We're going to see it again in Parakudet Pasuk Kaftet. Again, it's got, we're going to be told, Ki Gorshu Mimitraim. They were expelled from Egypt, and in other places as well, we have a sense that they're not leaving Egypt voluntarily. This also, I think, is going to be an important theme when we discuss their actual exit from Egypt. We have this sense that even though they are slaves, and one would imagine that the Bnei Israel, the children of Israel now, would rush enthusiastically out of the country when they're finally allowed to do so. It actually does not happen that way. We see that it is difficult for this generation to leave Egypt. We see that it's difficult to leave Egypt at all. Egypt, after all, is a place of prosperity. It's a place where the people keep longing for during the course of their uh, time in the desert. Um, and we'll perhaps talk about that a little bit more as we progress. But again, I mean, I think it's, we see here a little bit of the tension that is going to arise 
when the Am Yisrael is actually uh, told that they can leave Egypt. Uh, there's also, I think we have to note that there's a bit of a Gan Eden connection here, which we're going to talk about. We're going to further develop in our next few shirim. Uh, Adam and Chava are also expelled from Gan Eden. And um, certainly there is a correlation between the expulsion from Gan Eden and the expulsion from Egypt, there's a correlation between Ghanedin and Egypt in general, both of them being places of rivers, and both of them being places where human beings easily lose their awareness of God and their obedience to God. And here God says to Moshe, speak in the ears of the people, and each man should borrow from his friend, and each woman should borrow from her friend vessels of silver and vessels of gold. Vayiten Adonai et chen ha'am be'enei Mitzrayim. Gam ha'ish Moshe gadol me'od be'eretz Mitzrayim be'enei avdei Pharaoh u'be'enei ha'am. God made the nation favorable in the eyes of Egypt, and also the man Moshe was very great in the land of Egypt, in the eyes of the servants of Paro and in the eyes of the nation. So here we have almost what seems to be this uh, end of the story. The uh, Moshe is certainly held in great esteem by the people of Mitzrayim, specifically the servants of Paro, who we've seen several times, have tried to intervene on Moshe's behalf or on behalf of the people, more out of fear, presumably, than out of a great respect. But this seems to sort of um, uh, uh, end the story with a sense that Moshe and the people have earned respect or the esteem or the favor of uh, Egypt. The, the real question is, is uh, first of all, what is the nature of this command in Pasuk Bet to go and borrow all these items from the Egyptians? And perhaps what is the connection between the borrowing of these items and the fact that the people of Egypt hold Moshe and the nation in great esteem, especially Moshe. Uh, perhaps we'll just spend a minute or two trying to understand the whole story or the whole idea of the despoilment of Egypt. Certainly we understand that this is a very central component in the story. We already saw it back in Parak Gimel at the burning bush that God had told Moshe in advance that the despoiling of Egypt was going to be part of the story. We saw it all the way back in Brit Bein Abitarim, in the covenant between the pieces, in the 15th chapter of Sefer Bereshit, where God told Abraham about these events, and he also notes that the people will leave with great wealth. Uh, we're going to see it again. We're going to see it again in chapter uh, 12, and we're going to see it again in Tehillim Kufhei. So this certainly seems to be an important component of the story that the people leave, that the nation of Israel leaves after having borrowed from their neighbors uh, these vessels of silver and vessels of gold. And the modern scholars are somewhat conflicted about the nature of this idea, the nature of this command. Um, Professor Casuto, for example, considers this to be an indication of the Torah's regard for absolute justice to be served. Not only must the nation leave Egypt, but they must leave in the proper manner with recompense for all of the previous years of slavery. This shows that the tide has turned, that the world order is shifting back to a state of justice, to a, a state of in which everybody receives uh, due recompense. 
Professor Moshe Greenberg suggests, and I think that this seems to connect very nicely to the next pasuk, and that is that this is about the recovery of dignity by the liberated slaves. If you note here, these items that they're asking for are not useful items, they're decorative items, they're signs of wealth, they're signs of dignity. By leaving with this kind of material wealth, they can restore dignity to the nation, and they don't leave as a group of slaves, but rather adorned with these gifts that they have uh, received from the population. Perhaps the Rashbam suggests that this is about leaving in dignity not for their own sense of dignity, but for the purpose of serving God in dignity and in splendor. And in fact, Rashbam suggests that this is why they're told to take with them these gold and silver items. Um, and finally, um, Beno Jacob sees this as an attempt to fix relations between Jew and Egyptian. He also seems to connect this to the next pasuk. He says, in fact, <clears throat> the Jews were not meant to leave Egypt with bitter feelings, but to leave with a clean slate, and therefore they have to become re'im before they leave. They have to become actually on good footing with the Egyptians. In fact, as opposed to what we saw back in Paragimel, um, back in the story of the burning bush, when uh, when God had said there that each person should borrow, uh, that we were told they should borrow from their neighbor, mishchenta. And here it's borrowing each person should borrow from their friend. The Midrash uh, picks up on this point as well. And here, Beno Jacob suggests that this is the very point of this particular uh, command, and that is that they should not leave Egypt in a state of bitterness, rather in a way that shows that they've not been made hateful and bitter by their experience, and they can now begin their foray into a, a certain role of leadership as a nation, which can function as a beacon to other nations. And now we get the warning for Makat Becharot, which begins in Pasuk Dalet, Vayomer Moshe, Ko Amar Adonai, and Moshe said, So says God, At midnight I will go out into Egypt. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Paro, who sits on his throne, until the firstborn of the maidservant who sits behind the mill, who is behind the millstone, and every firstborn of the animal. What we have here is the warning of Makat Harot. But what's interesting, of course, is that Moshe doesn't seem to address Paro directly. This will only really have the sense that he's actually speaking to Paro in Pasukhet. Until Pasukhet, it's not clear that he's even in Paro's presence. It feels as though he's simply addressing the air, there's no one to really listen, it increases the sense of uh, Paro, the, the increasing alienation between Paro and Moshe, as Moshe here sort of addresses uh, no one as he's saying this warning. Presumably Moshe said this warning when he was still standing before Paro, before they parted at the end of the plague of darkness, but we really don't have any, um, any information on that. Uh, all we really know is is that Moshe is, we're going to see in Pasukhet, 
that Moshe is addressing Paro, even though here in the beginning, it doesn't feel as though he's addressing specifically Paro. Now, God, uh, Moshe speaks in the name of God and says that God said, at midnight, I'm going to go out into Egypt and all of the firstborn of the Egyptians is going to die. Pasuk repeats the word Bechor four times. Bechor Eretz Yisraeli, Bechor Paro, Bechor Hashivcha, Bechor Habeima. The uh, stress here, the emphasis here is certainly on the Bechorot. This harks back to what we saw in Shmot Perak Dalid when uh, God first sent Moshe to come to Paro. And he said, come to Paro and say, Ko Amar Hashem, Bini Vichori Yisrael. So says God, my firstborn son is Israel. And I said to you, send my, send my son out so that he can serve me and you refuse to send him. And therefore, I am going to kill your firstborn son. So this is certainly the fulfillment of what we saw back in chapter four. Again, what seems to be here is that this punishment is not simply a matter of redemption for Israel, but rather of a, a, a very clear statement that Paro has no right to appropriate God's firstborn, God's people. And as a measure-for-measure measure move, the firstborn sons of Egypt are going to die, but not simply in a punitive sense, but also, I think, to make the, the, the statement, to make it clear that Am Yisrael is considered by God to be his firstborn uh, nation, to be his firstborn child, and therefore Paro has encroached upon God's jurisdiction. And this point, I think, is not just for the Egyptians, but it's meant to be for the Jewish people as well. If you look in the next Pasuk, we're told that the uh, the result, of the consequence of this plague is going to be And there will be a great cry in all of the land of Egypt that there was never a cry such as this, and there shall never again be one like it. So this uh, element of there never was anything like it, there never will be anything like us, it reminds us of the plague of hail, of Barad, it reminds us of the plague of locusts. Some of the themes that we've seen in previous plagues, we are going to see that Makat Bechorot, this plague, collects many of those themes together. In this case, of course, God himself carries out the plague, as we saw with the plague of Dever, right, the... the um, the plagues that, that are contained within them, death, God seems to bring them about himself. And here we have this outcry in Egypt, which the likes of which was never heard before and shall never be heard again. Um, and yet again, this se'aka, this, this outcry, also reminds us of the outcry of B'nai Israel, of the children of Israel, which was heard by God at the very onset of the narrative, when we're told, and they cried out, in Perak Bet, Pasuk Kav Gimel, they cried out, and their cries rose up to God from their enslavement. So here we have namely the cry of the Egyptians, and this also seems to be measure for measure. They caused the children of Israel to cry, and the story ends with a great outcry in Egypt. Um, Pasuk Zion actually gives us a rather uh, peculiar piece of information. And for all of the children of Israel, 
a, a dog did not even wet his tongue, um, did not even sharpen his tongue against them, perhaps he did not even bark, he didn't even move his tongue from uh, from the, the person to the animal, so that you should know that God has distinguished between Egypt and between Israel. This distinction that God makes between Egypt and Israel in this plague is something that we've seen in many of the plagues previous, in many of the previous plagues, whether it was Arov, uh, the plague of the mixture of animals, or Dever, the plague of pestilence, or Barab, the plague of hail, or Cholshech. We already had several plagues in which God made this distinction. Here, the distinction is, is that there's no sound uh, um, in the camp, in the area in which B'nai Israel is living. No, not even a dog is barking. Um, now, on the one hand, this description of no dogs barking seems to be a description of a certain tranquility, a certain harmony that we have on the side of this blessed nation. It perhaps takes us back to a Gun Aiden-like situation in which humans and animals function in harmony one against the other. It certainly indicates that while there is this great commotion and outcry that's going on among the Egyptians, we have this sort of tranquil quiet that seems to be um, uh, taking place among the children of Israel. And yet this specific mention of the dog is rather intriguing, given that the Egyptian god of the dead was known as Anubis. Um, this god was represented as some sort of uh, black dog or a human with the head of the dog. And perhaps there is an attempt here once again to combat the pantheistic, the polytheistic notions of the Egyptians in which um, they have this idea that the dog god, which represents death, had uh, perhaps taken over that night and had vanquished all other gods and had made death reign among the Egyptian camp. Well, here, of course, not one dog wetted its tongue against one of the members of B'nai Israel. There is total silence. In other words, there is no death on the side of B'nai Israel. And so what we have here is God asserting that only he controls death, that he, of course, uh, is above this Anubis dog. So in any case, that is perhaps what the illusion is here, but it is an intriguing suggestion. Uh, and now we turn to Pasuk Chet, in which at this point Moshe turns directly to Paro and says, V'yardu chol avadecha ela elai, v'yishtachavu li leymar, tzei ata v'chol ha'am asher b'raglecha, v'acharechen etze, v'yetze me'im Paro b'chori af. So Moshe turns to Paro and says, and your, all of your servants will then come down to me, all of these servants of yours will then come down to me and bow to me saying, go out, you and all of the nation that is at your feet, and afterward, I will go out. And he turned away from Paro in great wrath. Moshe's final words here ring with a certain confidence and finality the mighty Egyptians will ultimately beg them to leave. All of these servants that are standing around the magnificent Paro at this moment 
Moshe will say, they will surely come down to me and they will, they will bow before me and they will say, leave, and then I will leave. And then, of course, Moshe turns away from Paro in great wrath. Why is he so angry at Paro? Perhaps it's because this is Rashi's suggestion, because Paro just told him, you shall not continue to see my face. Perhaps it's simply a cumulative anger that has come about because of all of Paro's tricks and games. It's unclear, but what does seem to be clear is that Moshe seems to have the upper hand. He leaves Paro speechless, at least according to the Tanakh. Paro does not respond to him. Since the beginning of Parashat Bo, from the beginning of the Plague of Locusts, there has been special emphasis placed on the tense and rather confrontational encounters between Moshe and Paro. After Moshe delivers the warning about the locusts, we have him turning and leaving the presence of Paro. Immediately following that, when Moshe is called back, we're then told that he's expelled. He expels them from Paro's presence. We've noted the very tense, tension-filled atmosphere that seems to have uh, developed between Moshe and Paro throughout this parsha. Uh, the tension is palpable, and the feel is very confrontational. It seems to be really that the purpose of the conversation here is not anymore to persuade Paro. It's not even necessarily to communicate with Paro, but rather Moshe is making a point by presenting the position of God. It is a confrontational position. Moshe is deliberately facing up to Paro. He, these are no longer negotiations. This is confrontation for the sake of education, for the sake of showing the world and showing Am Yisrael that in fact God is superior to Paro, and therefore Moshe is not prepared to make any concessions throughout the section. Uh, if you look in, in uh, Pesukim, Tet, and Yud, we have this um, very nice sort of ending for the Makot section, the seems to end in the Makot section. As I said, we're going to pause before Makat Bechorot will actually be implemented at the end of the chapter. Pesukim, Tet, and Yud, Vayomer Adonai El Moshe, Lo Yishmalechem Paro, Leman revot muftai be eretz mitzrayim, umoshe ve aron, asuet kol hamuftima ele, lifnei faro, vechazek adonai leif faro, velo shilach et bene Israel meartso. There's a real um, uh, closure feeling here, and God said to Moshe, Paro will not listen to you, so that I can increase my wonders in the land of Egypt. And Moshe and Aaron did all of these wonders before Paro, and God strengthened the heart of Paro, and he did not send the children of Israel from his land. This seems to be a summary verse. It's a summary of the battle between Moshe and Aharon versus Paro, and of course, obviously, uh, God's role in this battle is very prominent as well. So this seems to close the narrative that began in Parak Zion, with very similar words. This seems to represent some sort of closure. Um, and yet we know, of course, that this is a pause, a pause in order to prepare ourselves for that very significant moment of departure from the land of Israel. And this is what we're going to see at the, in the first section of chapter 12. We're not actually going to see the implementation of this plague until verse 29. What is the nature of verses 1 through 28? That's what we're going to be talking about for the duration of this year and in our next year as well. We're going to be talking about what takes place between now and the implementation of the 10th plague, which is, of course, the moment of redemption. The answer of what takes place between now and redemption is really very simple. 
mitzvot, mitzvot, and more mitzvot. We have, in fact, according to the Rambam's calculations in this parasha, 20 mitzvot. Uh, this is itself a question why we pause the story of, uh, of, of uh, removing Am Yisrael from Egypt and instead begin to talk about laws, commitment, service of God. In fact, the Ibn Ezra notes this interruption and says that, in fact, the reason that we interrupt the story um, between the warning of Makat Becharot and the actual implementation of Makat Becharot is to explain that, in fact, it's because of these mitzvot that Am Yisrael, that the uh, firstborn sons of Israel actually escape from God's wrath when he uh, brings this plague upon Egypt. That's the Ibn Ezra's approach. In any case, I think what's so astounding about this section of the story is how deeply Egypt recedes into the background. In the first part of the story, certainly, we were so deeply engaged in Egypt, in, in the pharaoh, in the palace, in the servants, in the magicians, and we almost, uh, it was very rare that we actually glimpsed the nation of Israel. Um, only in these last few plagues have we begun to turn our attention to Israel, but now what transpires from the first verse until the 28th verse of this section, we are actually totally focused upon the community of Am Yisrael. It almost feels as though they're already free, and the transition has already happened so completely that the entire present scenario of the, the nation of Israel actually being in Egypt has actually faded into the background. Let's look at the first mitzvah. I think we'll have time in today's shir just to deal with the first mitzvah that uh, is presented here at the beginning of Parakibet. And God said to Moshe and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, I think here again we have the sense that we have to be told that this takes place in the land of Egypt because the whole story here doesn't seem to flow. Um, it seems entirely incongruous that even while they are still slaves in Egypt, even while they're still ensconced in this foreign land, they're suddenly receiving all of these mitzvot. What is the first mitzvah that they receive? Pasuk Bet. Achodesh hazeh lachem rosh chodashim, rishon hu lachem hashana. This month will be for you the first of the months. This is the first month for the months of the year. And this, of course, is going to lead us into the mitzvah of Pesach, which is of Korban Pesach, which is going to take place on um, a specific date in this month, which we're already going to see in Pasuk Gimel. I'll just read the beginning of that Pasuk. Dabru el koladat Yisrael emor, asor lachodesh hazeh, v'yikhu lachem ish selavet avot selavet So we're told on the 10th day of this month, that's when each person should go out and take a sheep. So the idea is, is that first set up the calendar in order to prepare us for uh, the, the different events that are going to take place in this month in order to, to commemorate their freedom. Uh, why, in fact, does this story of Am Yisrael becoming a nation, the opening of this new period for Am Yisrael, begin with the specific mitzvah, which is called Kiddush HaChodesh, which is called the consecration of the month, which is considered to be its own mitzvah. Well, there are several ideas that I want to mention here, and um, with that, we'll, we'll begin to conclude this shiur. First of all, this is the beginning of a new era. A people newly freed must evolve its own autonomous, 
culture, its own autonomous set of laws, and this begins with a uniform calendar, which suggests a new time, a new period, a new era, even a new creation, which marks the beginning of time. Time starts fresh here as we enter into a relationship with God, a relationship that is based on freedom, on, on greatness, on setting into motion a new course of history. That's the first idea, and I think it very much coheres with the fact that the first mitzvah that the Jewish people receive as they're preparing for redemption is one that is about the calendar. It's about evolving a new kind of of, of perception of time. And that having been said, I think it's also important to note that the Egyptian calendar was solar. In other words, it wasn't exactly solar. It was that they marked time in agricultural terms. Egypt's, Egypt's seasons were named in connection with the agricultural conditions caused by the inundation of the Nile. And here what we see is, is that the calendar of Israel is primarily lunar. This itself represents a break from Egyptian culture. And so this first act is one that deliberately turns its back on a very central element of the way in which Egyptians mark time. Um, a third idea is that in this mitzvah, God is commanding Am Yisrael to be active. This is actually the very essence of what we call Kiddush HaChodesh, the calling of the month. The months are determined by humans, by the Beit Din, who in fact when they see the moon, that's when they decide that it is a new month. And perhaps this mitzvah is about Am Yisrael's power of freedom, the freedom to serve God, to be autonomous in serving God, to become um, uh, great in the power in which God has invested in them to exercise mastery over time. Um, if this is in fact part of what this mitzvah is really about, it makes sense that at this moment on the cusp of freedom, Am Yisrael is being told that God has invested in them a great power in, in, in their freedom, a power to be able to determine their own destiny in serving God. Um, that's a third idea in terms of perhaps why this specific mitzvah is the first one given to Am Yisrael as part of their movement towards redemption. I'll mention one final idea, and with that we'll bring this class to a close. Um, Kiddush HaChodesh is also an expression of the concept of Kiddushat Hazman, the sanctity of time. We know that there, are, that there is Kiddushah, there is sanctity in different spheres, there's sanctity in humans, there's sanctity of space, that's what we see in the temple, for example, and there's sanctity in time, where we find that, of course, in uh, the mitzvah of Shabbat, and also in the mitzvah of the months, and the chagim, which are linked to the months. Um, now, one thing I think that is important to note is that Am Yisrael, when they were slaves, their time did not belong to them. They were, of course, subject to their masters, and therefore not only was their time not sanctified, they simply were not autonomous, they were not masters of their own time, and therefore, in order to move towards freedom, they have to learn the concept of counting time, of marking time, of exercising mastery over their time, and that makes this a particularly important mitzvah and particularly important commandment that is meant to 
lead them to freedom, that is meant to also give them a little bit of a taste of what freedom is. They're being told here, call the months. Uh, note that the, the passage of time. Note the importance of the passage of months, something which perhaps a slave is not able to note, doesn't have the luxury of noting. And so all of these different ideas, I think, may explain to us why this next section, which we're going to continue studying together in our next class, begins specifically with the mitzvah of Kiddush HaChodesh, of the consecration of the months, of the building of the Jewish calendar. It is an experience which is meant to give them both a sense of time. It's meant to indicate that this is a new era. It's meant to turn their back on the way in which Egyptians and Egyptian culture mark time. And it's meant to also create the beginning of an active, autonomous nation who is both master of its own time and also recognizes the significance of that fact. In our next class, we will begin from Perak Yudbet Pasuk Gimel. If the mitzvot that begin to lead to Korban Pesach, to the sacrifice that we bring on Pesach, and all of the attendant mitzvot that surround that event.